Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 10th of November 2019. I hope everyone's doing okay and keeping their sanity as, as much as possible. You have to give up some once in a while. It's a little bit of sanity, a little bit of time, not too much at once. And you might just make it. That's how you get through life, especially with incredible propaganda we're, we're forced to, to consume in this day and age. This is information age, remember. But it's unfortunate that most of it's disinformation or it's not very um, honest information. You're, you're getting it's propaganda, disinformation. And, and you've got everybody involved in, in, in making big bucks by tampering with their heads, offering their services, because they know that it's so lucrative to persuade us to do things, to manipulate our minds. All kinds of behaviorists, all kinds of scientists and neuroscientists working with technicians and, and on the internet. And one time they, they used to stick to, like Britain. Britain was a, a, a cutting edge country for, for using propaganda, always actually. There's different kinds of propaganda and there's different labels to propaganda for different eras. And the first time I, I realized there was such a, a, a lot of propaganda is when I was a child. And I listened to the history of Britain, the stuff that they taught you in school. And I thought, what a lot of nonsense that is, you know. Because they, they paint this picture of some kind of peasant land, the happy peasants all serving their masters and royalty, using their intellect and chatting and being witty. And all that, all this stuff you see in those terrible plays, they keep churning out of the BBC. And, but that's how they give you the history books too. The rest of it was just conquerors, who conquered who, and, 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 and who, who, who grabbed the land, and who grabbed the wife, or whatever. And, and that's how it was. That's dates and dates and battles, and, and generals and things like that. And that was your history. So the whole of past, the whole of the past just was wrapped up in battles and generals and histories and conquerors and things. Uh, but you never got a picture, really, not really, of the ordinary folk, because they didn't matter. Uh, the histories were written by people who were literate. And the, the bulk of the populace in all the countries at one time were, were illiterate. And they were kept illiterate by choice, by the masters who say they, they, they made the choice for you. And you, you served your, your, your deity, according to the masters. And unfortunately, religion's always been bent and used by conquerors. Always will, you see. In all countries, it doesn't matter what the deity was, or the era, for that matter. And that's also why, say, Britain and many European countries gave up on religion, especially Christianity, because of prolonged wars massive wars of incredible cost of life, incredible famines that caused two, by the way, you know. You don't think about that, but during wartime, you, Britain, for instance, was on rationing, mass terrible rationing. You couldn't, you'd die in it today probably, or you'd kill each other to, just to get to the, each other's food. And they'd come out of a great depression. They weren't out of it even, they were still in it. Uh, from the 20s, even before that with, with World War I and rationing, right through to the 1950s. And behind it all, in these massive wars, massive wars, the world wars, that's what they had world wars, where they had so much of the world involved in it. 
the idea at the top, we're told now, or after it, of course, was, was to unite the world under a proper system run by the proper folks who gave you the wars in the first place. And you'd all, they'd, they'd have the whole planet then to rule. That really was what it was. And the, the members of those who ruled the British Empire, and it was called an empire then too, were Lord Milner, Alfred Milner and his groups, and, and other circles which had joined and merged with them, like the Cecil Rhodes Society. And this is, in, this is now in, in modern history, but they admit it now, but they poo-pooed it for years, but then now they admit it, it's true. And I've got the books written by some of these characters, because they had, they had more... They actually wrote, at least had teams writing their own books for themselves to try and humanize them and, and their, their plans for this great empire for the planet. And, of course, we know that the U.S. picked up the baton from Britain after World War II and uh, took over paying the taxes and supplying the troops to, for the rest of the world. And it hasn't changed yet. And then even some of the top members in it, like Arnold Toynbee at the time, was a big player for the new society that they were designing. And he said that in, in his own books. And I've seen the same statements, which I think it probably came from him too, in the Royal Institute for International Affairs books, the annual books they produced to turn out in the 1930s. It was said again, it's, it's, I'm sure it's him, it's the same phraseology, and I'm pretty well word for word, but he said eventually China would take over from America. This is the 1930s. The, the America would take over from Britain and then... They, they, they come forth and surge and, and be very powerful. Then they start to fail and they'd resurge again and fail and resurge maybe two or three times. And then they just fall in the background, exhausted, financially destitute. And China would take over as a policeman of the world. These are official books, by the way, you know. And it's fine if you want to call them conspiracy theories, but every banker on the planet was there. Every central banker on the planet was there. Every politician that served in the governments of Britain and the Commonwealth, but were there. And all the, the members, all parties, the top leaders of all parties, including the Communist parties in Britain, were there too, and, and according to this book, which was published by the Rockefeller Foundation, <laughs> because they, they financed the publications of these ones at the time. So you're often called conspiracy theorists, but literally I've been, I mean, I, I scratch my head sometimes, because it's boring to me to wake up and know that I was talking about what was coming, what we're living through today, 20, even 30 years ago, and watching it happen step by step, exactly as it was planned to come out, all these different changes in society. And it's like, it truly is like Groundhog Day, where you live the same type of thing over and over, all these different days lived over, because you've already done it with a kind of precognition. But they published what they, what they planned to do, you see. And this stuff really is, is all written in books which they publish themselves in different institutions and think tanks. And, and again, the United Nations is a massive source of it because they were set up to be eventually a front, a big front to rule the world, a front, a front system, you see. And they, sure enough, they packed it with every unbelievable person you could imagine, including the top communists. And they'll still do that. It doesn't matter. They don't care, like Quigley said, Carl Quigley, who worked for the same big world institution, and the CFR, uh, the American branch, uh, and he knew the trilateral members too. Uh, the trilaterals came a bit later than his last books, but 
he knew some of them indeed, and he knew it was to come. He 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 had no objections against it himself. He, just some of their their methods he objected to, but he said himself in tragedy and hope. The reason he came forward was because it was time that he thought that the public should know the incredible importance of this society that most folk didn't know existed and didn't know who the members were because it had had such massive influence on the history of not just America, but the world. And that's quite a little, that's a lot to pack into a, a one-liner type thing, but that's, that's exactly how we put it across. So these organizations exist, they set up, um, the Alfred Milner Group, the Bank for International Settlements, a long time ago, in the 1920s, I think it was. And that would become the exchange rate controller, the manufacturer for the planet. And they'd decide who owed what to whom, and how much interest would be charged if you defaulted, etc. Because you still have to pay it off, at least the peasantry would, the populace of the countries. And they also set up the, uh, eventually, um, a few banks under the League of Nations, and then with the, with the United Nations, it morphed into the, yeah, they, they came out with the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, which is the OECD. Every country signed on to that to build factories not across the planet, and all the peasantry in their own countries that supposedly won the war would pay for all for the big corporations. Nothing's changed; it still goes on. But so much is deception, so much of how we're, we're ruled and our realities is ruled by. Today is scientific deception, as I say, with all the, uh, the, the professionals and the, the minds, the mind studies on us are in charge, convincing us to do things we, we shouldn't ought to do, perhaps, or accept things we shouldn't ought to accept, as Aldous Huxley said in his interview with Wallace. So we're living through it, and as I say, it's fascinating to see how it's either ignored or accepted, even in a calm way, in a superficial way, because most folk think, don't think too deeply about what they hear, unless it's emotive. If it's emotive, those who want to use you will give you terrible, scary scenarios and terrify you, and that will stick in your mind forever, especially if you're a child, it's cool. And, you, and if you see, if, if the first time you actually see an animal in the wild eating another animal in the wild, it, it, that, that, you'll never forget it. You'll never forget it. And you could make up any, any fairy story that as you, in school, as you're showing children this, and say man's caused this to happen, and they believe it. They will. They will believe that. It goes together. It's imprinted in their brain, as they call it, imprinted. So that's how the world is run by our masters. And they, they always create new armies of the revolutionaries. Revolution's like a great idea if you're, if you're young. You know, if you're a teenager, and you're just, your hormones have kicked in and you're, you're angry about things and, and, and things just don't make sense and, and, and you have no patience with anything and you've got to blame somebody and you're given all the, all the, all the enough ammunition of who you blame, you see. And you, that'll do. Especially when you think it's you as doing it all. It's, we're doing it, you see. My generation's doing it. Not like the song, My Generation. They came out uh, talking about my generation. Somebody with a terrible stammer sung it. And it, it was quite something to see. At the same time, you had Bob Dylan and his songs for revolution too, you see. The times they are a-changing. Telling folk, tell, telling the older folk, get out, you know, get out. Don't stand in the way.
for the times they're a-changing. And let us deal. Now, what did Bob Dylan ever create except a trail of <laughs> mess behind himself in reality? What you're given are front people. You always have been given front people. But that was a deliberate act back then by professionals above, way above Dylan who already owned the culture industry through movies and music and so on and who planned to, to get this revolution going. It was to be a sexual revolution. And, and uh, first they tried to, the, the basic rights for, for humankind type idea. It, it wasn't going so well, so they changed it quickly to the sexual revolution. And the sexual revolution was to break everything that used to be. The old standards of everything had to be thrown out to the window. And um, under the guise of freeing everybody, and the state eventually taking care of the fallout of the sexual revolution, which is still continuing to this day, they deal with any problems. They would destroy the family unit. That was one of the main reasons for all. And they sung about it, and they got the young involved in it, and they gave them drugs, and they said, go to it. And like anybody at that age, everybody just flocked into it. It's, 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 it's like children who love candies. As I've said this before, that's why every store you'll see, every checkout counter has, is loaded with candies and within reach of children, you see. It's intentional on the way out. And when there's a queue, they know too, when there's a queue behind you and you're going to pay for your groceries or whatever it happens to be, the last thing you want is a scene and holding up the queue when that child wants that and that and that, you see. It's all psychology. Well, but you can't blame the children. Uh, that it was meant to get them going like that, so they get the candy. And it's the same with sex. When your hormones kick in, you're not thinking straight. It can be a terrible period for a lot of people, because especially when the basic rules, the basic rules that used to make things just just about work, you see, are tossed out the window by design, and you promote uh, sex, 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 you see, and then promote too. What they gave you were um, people who were falling off chairs in interviews on television, uh, your new heroes, because they were drugged. And then uh, people with Eton accents or London accents, because the, B- the BBC at one time promoted all this stuff. So here, here is your ruling class. And the BBC represented the, the, the ruling class. At one time, they didn't hire anybody in the BBC in any of their positions, except cleaning, perhaps, unless they'd been to Eton. Or Oxford, you see. It's quite something to see how it is promoted. It works. It's guaranteed to work. And you've got your catchy songs and, and, and you know, the, the youngsters think, yeah, we're, 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 we're doing this revolution, you see. Something has been done over and over again in history by those who know how to handle and, and manage the youth. You find it too far back before even the regular crusades got on the go because the first crusade was, was the children's one led by a, a crazy monk, you see, uh, and got them all hyped up and so on, who, who gave them visions of utopia and doing God's will, and with, with millions of very poor peasants living in horrible conditions and squalor, it wasn't hard to give them visions, because you can paint pictures, the pictures in their minds by, by, a, by a good speaker, a good orator, or, or through today in our own time, it's through movies and um, documentaries and, and psychology too. I've even given talks before, years ago, about the, some of the people 
that they, they hire for these documentaries. Some of them worked for the CBC in Canada. These strange, you know, deepish voice women with deepish voices who were very hypnotic and they spoke in a certain tone and went back and forth and over and over. And, and it was very, very hypnotic, you see. So they get paid big bucks for that kind of stuff for documentaries. But I say, children won't forget those things that where, where it has an emotive imprint left in their brain. And it's very hard to, to persuade them what you saw was fiction or whatever. You know, nothing changes. But anyway, the view is children down through the ages. And we see the same thing in various wars uh, all down through the ages. Really, you could join an army about up to the age of 12 years old, no problem. Or starting at 12. If you carry a sword at one time, they could, they could, you could, they'd take you. And you wouldn't last long, but you might kill somebody and like, off the enemy. You see, they didn't care. Those who ruled never cared. And even in World War One, there were there were youngsters going in and found some of their ages going really young, who simply lied and there was a nod and a wink, and you got in no problem at all by the recruiter. So. Children are always used for it. And again, too, all, they all thought they were fighting for great things, you see. And to get them into World War I as an example, and get this great war on the go, this great war, that's what they called it. It was the, to be the great war. And that's what they called it until World War II came along. Then it, it was called World War I, that happened. But the great war, the big players behind the scenes that ruled the empire, literally thought they could bring a, a world government in which they would rule. Uh, by exhausting uh, the nation states and making them comply under agreements which would eventually solidify into one governmental rule. That didn't quite work, and H.G. Wells confirmed that because he was all for it, and he said, we need another war. And at the end of World War II, just before he died, he said that they still haven't given up their sovereignty, they're not weak enough, we need another one. So it would have taken as many as as you could to get it to, to happen, you see. But children especially are, are, are very susceptible to almost a romanticized propaganda because they have no wisdom yet. You haven't developed the wisdom yet. It takes a long time to get wisdom. And that's the sad thing about life. You often get enough wisdom to, towards the end when you're ready to kick the bucket, and that's it. Or if you do get it, then who's going to listen to you anyway? Because, there's, because the dynamics of propaganda are, are, are been getting better and better and better and constant, actually. It's like 24 hours a day now in our day and age. So it's very difficult to compete against that. You'll see huge armies of NGOs, which are also paid for. Huge armies of them across the world now. And I've even got articles from the United Nations where they tell the youth that they should join these, these big NGOs because the adults are messing up the planet. This is from the United Nations. I have some links to it if I can find them. So they're not happenstance. They're not there because they're little revolutionaries. They, 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 think they, they, they think that if what they're fighting for is to save the planet. They've been so terrified in school because school, and through UNESCO and so on, has a unified structure of propaganda to, to creating the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. That's what Julian Huxley talked about, one of his main purposes. So at the same time, you saw the same, similar things with, with uh, Russia uh, and uh, with the first uh, the big revolution in Russia when the Bolshevik ones came in 1917. But they had stacks of young folk behind them very easy to, to promise them everything 
until you use them. And then if you still get angry because you didn't get what you thought you'd, you'd wanted as a follower, you know, a young follower, the, the, the Bolsheviks, they eliminated you. That's what Besmanov talked about too. Once they've done their job, they won't stand anybody complaining. So humans are awfully good at being used. Awfully, awfully good at being used. And sure enough, now uh, there's books coming out from, again, historians with declassified stuff from World War One and Two, talking about uh, the, how bogus all the reasons for them were. It really is something to, to, to realize that millions of people, millions have been killed fighting for things that would have been used by higher powers which they didn't even know existed. It really is something. Because really, true, they, they do believe that the leaders that they think they elect are the bosses. They think they come to their own decisions. Yeah, I'll, jo- I'll join up and and we'll get the war to end up all wars and to end up all wars into one global structure system and we'll have peace and prosperity and be happy. And then the youth that fight for these things always they say they're all angry. You see, you're angry and you're, you're awkward in so many ways and so on. But uh, you're angry and this is going to make you somehow happy. Smashing everything is going to make you happy, really. Mm. So all this is well understood, as I say, by by our nudge experts, our, our behavior insights teams that work on the internet and study us all and tell you what, where you should go and look at things and what things you should read as opposed to what you want to read and all that. You're under incredible manipulation right now. It really is astonishing that every country is in on it, of course, which tells you again that you're all, you're all really global when behavioral insights teams are, are controlling you so much of your societies and you and your thoughts and your, de- your decisions and what you really believe in. And you can really believe in things and be utterly wrong with, with good propaganda. And you'll be used, of course. Now, years ago, too, I talked about the attempts by big government to reduce the populations. And, and we saw it in the Middle Ages at times, too. You, you seem to think that bookkeeping is a, a rather new idea, maybe a 20th century thing. But you don't realize that the lords of manors, that the were nobility in different areas of, say, Britain, from the old feudal system, they had incredible inventories of, of farmland, arable farmland, population expected children from recent marriages of the peasantry, which would add, of course, to, to the next crop of farmers and workers and all that. Incredible documentation. It's really astonishing. And at times, at times, they would cause famines on purpose by taking more and more and more of the food away from the peasants that were serfs, remember. Uh, and leaving not enough to feed themselves and their livestock and so on. And it would reduce the, reduce the population, if they thought they were getting a bit uppity at times. And don't forget, the people really weren't given wages until after the first great plague that they had, which wiped so many people out. And then to get, the, and a lot of them just ran off the land for the first time. And so much, so many of the, the, the guards and so on and the armies that were, would go after these people, they were dead too. So that you start offering them money for the first time to come and work. And as soon as they started to breed up again, they tried to do the same thing all the way again. This, is, this goes on and on and on with human nature, unfortunately. And it's kind of sad. I mean, I can look at animals and I, you'll, you'll sometimes see different animals competing for the same foods. 
I like animals, even if they're nasty to each other at times, because they're more direct, you see. And you'll, you'll see the chipmunks, for instance, getting attacked by the squirrels, or kind of nasty characters as squirrels. They're bullies in their own little area. And I've seen, for instance, when there's bird seed there, when it falls down to the bottom of the pole, you'll see the little chipmunks run up to get it. And, but you'll see the, the, the squirrel uh, just run out and chase them off. If any, if any of the birds come to, on the ground too to get the, the fallen seed, you'll see the same thing. The squirrel will, will run at them. And they've got amazing coordination. Sometimes I've seen two squirrels at a time sometimes. If it's a bunch of, a bunch of uh, birds land, uh, you'll see them all. They'll, they'll run like sheepdogs either side trying to scare them off. They can work together when it suits them. And other types too, they're rather vicious to each other. But uh, that's what squirrels are. That's what, they, that's what they do. But at least you know what they are and what they'll do. So animals are, are kind of more honest, more honest than we are. Uh, we have the problem in society of this thing called intellect. I used, to, I used to worry, or not so worry, I used to study intellect. And I'd study human nature. Because I, one, one problem I had at one time was how a lot of the people who seem to rule us, not just at the top, but lower down too, uh, even in a working class system or even a factory type setting or whatever it happened to be, we're, we're, we're psychopathic, but likable psychopaths, you see. And the likable psychopath generally gets people to, to do the work for them. They'll do it willingly because they can, they, can be, they can be charming. Even the ones who have no education, that's what really struck me. The ones who had no or very little education, I still had those techniques. So I realized that, 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 that it's like a cunningness which is different from intellect. There's definitely a cunningness there, which is innate. And there are some people who have got more cunningness than others. Now, with a psychopath, they can do things, they can break the taboo barriers, the natural things you just don't do. They can break those and get away with it if they're caught. And they'll even be protected by those around them who are not psychopaths, but who are like them, who've been charmed, you see, under the spell. Don't confuse intellect with the ability to use people like a psychopath, because the psychopath has got such cunning behavior. You can actually get people with fairly low IQs in their own settings with each other who are psychopaths and who will use the other ones too very, very cleverly. It's a clever thing, but it's not intellect as such, but it's clever. So it's a different trait altogether. And I liken it to an animal survival type mechanism because it definitely exists. Now, a psychopath regardless again of IQ, can read people awfully well, awfully well, and manipulate them too. They're great manipulators. And now, psychopaths also can work together if, they, if you're getting big pay from masters above them. That's also a, a problem for humanity because don't forget, instead of middle-age scenario, You'll see the old old movies or, or children's series like Robin Hood or something. There's always the king's men. And the king's men really were people who, who didn't, they got paid better than the, any other, but they came from the peasant class or the serfs themselves who were promised a little bit more of everything if they became eligible for the army to serve it. And they brought their own weapons, they had to get their own weapons and so on generally. 
and they were sent overseas in the Middle Ages. Their pay, really, a lot most of their pay often came from plundering and pillaging, and they they killed with impunity any conquered people, and they raped a lot as well. So they're highly undisciplined, and that was the way it was across the world for a long, long time. But they're quite willing to bash the heads or kill their own peasantry, their own fellow peasants, for a bigger pay. So they were they had psychopathic traits. You see, they're less bothered with. With guilt, they didn't didn't have the same guilt problems and stuff. And they, they were mercenaries, in other words. They would go off to war and kill whatever, whatever enemy they were told to kill. And it didn't matter to them. They didn't know them, or it, it didn't even matter what propaganda they were given for killing them. And that's, but they go and do it anyway. They were basically lifelong, however long their life was, uh, mercenaries. But they would definitely be classified, if you could possibly um, give them different tests, they show that they were psychopathic. But they were the same ones who, who would round up their own fellow citizens. They were the thugs that, that used by governments down through the ages to oppress the people in their own countries. But come about the into the 1800s, when you had the empires on the go, you find, for instance, that it, when there was more, more money going around, there was basic education starting to come in in different areas in Britain. They had to start to show a different face to themselves and the world if they wanted to to, to claim they had an empire if it was beneficent to the, the people that conquered, basically. And I, and I never went out to conquer, I wasn't went out to help, you see. So that's how you as always said. It's, you're going to give them education, you're going to give them uh, civilization, and so on and so on and so on, as they, as they plunder them. However, the military themselves, they had to become orderly, disciplined, and uniform in their standards. And in that way, too, you could stop uh, the plundering and hopefully the, the pillaging and the raping, too, perhaps. Because you had to put on a good face to the countries you were occupying. And it's been that way ever since then. Now, in the 20th century, it began to get a little bit better because propaganda was better. And you could get people to join up using basic, simple propaganda. H.G. Wells talked about it. He was a propagandist for the system because he wanted World War I with the Fabian Society. And he, uh, he came up with propaganda ideas like the white feather and the cap. And he, he wrote articles in the big newspapers and said, you know, if, if, dear lady, if your if your suitor or your fiance doesn't join up voluntarily, then please wear a feather in your in your hat to show him a coward, so he will join. And you wouldn't believe the dirty tricks they used again. Young people who whose hormones are aging, and uh, a guy wants his wife because his hormones are aging. And if I won't go off and fight for something, then make him shun him, shun him by the community, by the nation, and so on, until he's he's got a guilt complex. Nothing's low enough to get us to get killed for purposes you'll never figure out. Because as I say, it's only now they're telling you the reasons, some of the reasons, actually not all of them, but some of the reasons why these big wars were started. Two world wars came, as I say. And each time you went off to fight for your country to preserve it, supposedly, for being conquered, and to preserve your culture and your way of life. And they used the same tactics to bring on World War II. And then after that, you, you had the Cold War. And lots of guys after World War II signed up, the next generation signed up to fight in different areas and police Europe and so on against the Soviet threat, which was, it was a, definitely a, an empire, the Soviet system. Uh, for communism, and everybody believed in it. 
So uh, there was a good, good cause. As I say, that was give you good causes to save yourself, to save those at home, to save your families and so on. Meanwhile, of course, the intention was complete to change the world by using this, this conflict, this dialectic. And today there are so many ex-servicemen who are so ticked off and furious, actually, realizing that everything they fought for, for in, in World War I, World War II, and the, the, the wars in between afterwards too, plus the Cold War, were all completely in vain or manufactured because nothing happens in, in, unless the, those at the top permit it to happen or order it to happen. And it's obviously the intention was to basically destroy the cultures at home and completely eradicate them, in fact, and kiss off any good that was done. Even in World War Two. Uh, the treaties were the excuse that Winston Churchill used to get the people into war. And they had them with Czechoslovakia and Poland. And lo and behold, uh, the excuse was to, when Poland was invaded, they'd, they'd go to, to, to save Poland. And meanwhile, they got the whole world, a world war going, mind you. And, and at, at uh, the, the, the treaty, Yalta Treaty, uh, Churchill and Roosevelt gave away uh, Poland to the Soviet system before the war was finished. Isn't that amazing, eh? So we're used, we're lied to, and as Carl Quigley said, all sides change after a war. That which you're fighting to save will often become what you are after the war. And even if you're abused, you become the abuser, same kind of thing. You find that you're fighting communism, for instance, and meanwhile at home, your universities were allowed and actually promoted to, were promoting communism or Marxism. It's obvious, isn't it? So everybody was had by a system owned by those at the top who have a completely, a completely different worldview and agenda than those who do all the terrible fighting and dying. But in the Middle Ages, without really professional or advanced psychological propaganda, the soldiers, as I've said, were the more psychopathic or base mercenary type. During the plague's time, too, they would simply round up the people, burn their homes down, and, and make a barrier line so that if the peasants tried to get into the castles, uh, they'd all be shot by the archers and things. So it wasn't much of a life for, for ordinary folk. Your, your, your life definitely was, was not to, to the same level of worth as those who ruled over you. That's how it was seen. It was quite, and that was accepted as normal. Now, here's the bad news, in a sense. You see, it hasn't changed. That whole mentality hasn't changed. And deception, as opposed to the straightforward animal, I want your seed, I'm going to get it. And they'd run at them, you know, and bite them or whatever. Humans are much more better at it. The psychopathic humans are awfully, awfully good at it. And the higher, the higher lots of people who do have intellect as well, and, and who'll write good propaganda, they also have the ones lowered down the totem poles who write the lesser propaganda, but they, they'll still do it for a paycheck. And we're brainwashed into going along with different um, parts of this agenda because it's a never-ending story to get to where they want to go. We're at the super elite, and this is true. With the eugenics, uh, they, were, they were all obsessed with eugenics. The super elite, right up to Charles Darwin, who gave him the ammunition, which they jumped on to put it into writing, is why they had the natural right to rule over the lessers. You see. And that has never gone away. And Julian Huxley, for instance, kept it going uh, after World War II when eugenics had got a bad name with the camps and all the rest of it. But here we are living through the revival of it all again because uh, 
the first thing that Hitler did was because he, he looked at the America and Britain, who'd published books for the last about 20 years before, at least publishing for about at least 20 years before, maybe even longer, about the need to, to uh, sterilize the unfit and things like that. And they, they, and they also tossed about the idea of, of simply euthanizing them. Well, he, he got control of a country and put it to the test, and he, he brought his, his, his different hygiene policies, and when they went round to hospitals and started killing the unfit, that's how it started. Now, he, he was lambasted and folk were horrified at that kind of thing, too. And never mind the fact that the, the people who ruled Britain were all for it themselves, but they didn't, the public wouldn't allow it at the time. Uh, and it's so all you do is wait, wait uh, about another you know, 50 to 60 to 70 years and reintroduce the ideas again. And now, of course, they're doing it in hospitals. While you see it'll cost X amount of bucks to, 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 to give this person treatment every month. And um, we can use that in our wars and things, you know. Or we could use it on royal weddings, maybe, and stuff like that. Or even for the security for royal weddings, which is very expensive. So I'm afraid so many of the peasants will have to just go without and die. That's the reality of it, too. It's quite amazing. And also, for those who don't quite get it, the societies that existed, as I say, the Royal Institute for International Affairs, CFR, the Cecil Rhodes Society, the Trilateral Commission, are all combined and they're all one organization at the very top. This is specialized branches, that's all. And they're running a whole bunch of the world, the world show, not just in the, but the world show right now. And you, you find the articles coming out rather in your face now, isn't it? How they can be gods, you see. They're all be gods. And uh, you, you've, you've had the silly movies come out too with the, the super geniuses, because they always present them as, as geniuses, although they're not. They're front people. We should listen to these geniuses who just know it's a better way to rule you. Well, that's what the Royal Institute for International Affairs came out with a few years back, saying that we should start listening to and allow these folk to govern us and their own publications. Well, you don't vote for them, do you? But the more dysfunctional they can make society appear to be, and reality is, but make it even worse, the more people will start listening, and the more propaganda they get on a daily basis through their televisions and so on, uh, the less likely they'll be against something, including euthanasia. So in comes euthanasia again, and they're popping off people. Years ago, they started it off in Holland. That was the first country to, to officially bring it into place. I think China had it too. And uh, I know they had it for the prisoners and so on too. And there have a lot of mistakes. And Canada's got it, and different places in the U.S. have got it as well. Again, it's an emotive subject, you see. And everybody's so terrified about cancers. Oh, I don't want any. I don't want to live if I've got that. But here's the thing. They don't tell you they could treat you. And you could be pretty well pain-free for quite a few years after the fact, too. But it might cost a bit of money. Not a lot, but enough for let me save, you see. And if you're down on the totem pole... Then, you know, well, we can't really help you, my friend, you know, no, I can't help you. Wouldn't it be better to have this pill and, and the euthanism? That's happening. So it's an economic thing. As they tell you, there's just not enough money. As they give themselves paychecks and hire more behaviorists to, to brainwash you into accepting suicide or whatever it happens to be. It's, it's really quite amazing the time we're living in, isn't it? 
So again, I, as I preferred animals who are more forthright in what they want to each other. And neither side, the one who's been attacked or the one who's doing the attacking is under any illusions that I'm going to attack you and then I'm going to easily attack me and eat me. That's how blatant. But here we have these specialists and these quiet, can voice people, you know, who, who can talk over a documentary and you say, oh, that's right, okay, okay, you know, kill me then. And there you go. It really does work. It really does work. And you can convince the people to go along with anything by painting terrible, bad, tragic, horrible pictures. And of course, that is what the whole climate thing is about, folks. Climate's always changed. Years and years ago, I, I said that, uh, before all the, the real heavy hullabaloo started, I said that I've had supposedly so many ice ages, and then you have these thousands of years between where you start melting all until you end up getting a massive ice age in again. Well, you see, that's what you go through. And supposedly we had a whole bunch of them before there were any humans supposedly on the world, if any of it's true. But again, the Club of Rome were given the task, as I said before, of coming up with something to unify the planet, make us give up our rights and make us allow ourselves to be ruled by the fitter people, the better people, you see. And one of the Green Party operatives said in Britain a few years ago, and I read it on the air at the time, that she missed the, the idea of a, a society like Britain had during World War II of bed rationing and and, and they would did without, and, and they, were, they, did, they did what they were told all the time. They just obeyed, obeyed for survival's sake. You see, it's a pity we just don't have it. Well, here it is all again with all the scary scenarios you're getting, eh? In the open. It's in your face now. So the Club of Rome were given the task of finding some reason to terrify us, which they'd all, all these ones at the top with Dennis have said last week, that they swear an oath to go along together. And they do, they'll never vary. They'll all say the same catchphrases and so on, if asked the same questions. And that's a clue right off the bat, that they're all sworn to this. And no matter how, how the weather will go one way or the other, they'll stick by it through thick and thin. Or hail or snow. <laughs> so anyway, when they came out with it, it was just after that they, they were given all the hullabaloo about the coming ice age. All the top people were, oh, the coming ice age. And they terrified the public and they had it taught in schools to terrify a generation. But it didn't happen. So they changed it. They well, the weather's not cooperative. Let's, let's go for the warming thing, you see. And since most folk can't remember from many years, even five years ago, they can't remember much. So they, it's easy to convince the public the world's falling apart when it isn't. They say, oh, what about these fires? Well, see, the fires in California is coming out now that uh, by the authorities, they're suspecting these are deliberately set. So many of them anyway. And I wouldn't be surprised in other countries too, it's the same thing at the same time. You've already got the NGO radicals doing crazy things and stunts and all the rest of it to stop eating food and, and meat and all that. And, they're ready to, to beat up farmers and stuff. So it's no big thing to have them, oh, well, we'll cause it to be terrible and then the people will have to listen to us and, and, and stop and stop it because of global warming, you see. Then they changed to the climate change too, you see. And a lot of the authors who wrote the, the climate change Ice Age books are the same authors that 
it gave you the word of the coming. You're all going to get fried uh, books that came out later too. Because they're all on the payroll. Very good money too for, for that. Anyway, so the Club of Rome was given the task and they said, well, and they, they did, they tossed all kinds of ideas around that what would terrify the public enough. And, and they, they, they gave themselves a good time span, maybe, maybe 20 or 30 years, for a generation to be brainwashed from school and right through. Uh, that's how you do it. You don't just do it off the bat. You've got to have the people brainwashed and you need a generation to do it. So they came up with the idea and this is what they came up, they thought that climate, you see, and droughts and famine and plagues and the like, that would fit the bill. So man would be the problem. So, see, the idea was to get something that humankind would get blamed for, and you'd be trained to accept that as your fault to make you go along with it. See, that would fit the bill. That's what they said, that would fit the bill. Well, they've sworn to that with IPCC, and they'll, they'll never change. And I said, I gave the scenario, the whole problem was always depopulation. Always depopulation. Aldous Huxley and his brother Julian talked about all the time depopulation. There's too many people, meaning the wrong people. And all the others too are sworn. Even the Duke of Edinburgh with all these great um, reservations for, for animals and across different parts of the world. They're on the best farmland, even in Africa. You can, the folk can't go in and use it. There's reasons behind everything, but, you don't, but the cunning folk of the world run it, you see. And the Duke of Edinburgh isn't a particularly bright fella, or his offspring for that matter, but they're cunning enough. And, it, and, and definitely the, the Duke had that bit of a psychopathic trait about him. He didn't care what he said, he'd say what he wanted, and, and uh, he'd, he'd laugh about it. He didn't care. He didn't have to care, did he? <laughs> Who's going to fire him? So you're, you're living through an amazing plan. And they've tried different things in the past. They've used wars to get to this stage. They've used um, globalization where, and genetic modification of your foods. So it's, it's all under a few corporations that own the world's food supply now. Beautiful, eh? Well, that's a war strategy, isn't it? For a war strategy on a nation, or see a whole bunch of nations, now it's a global society, right? You, you must control the foods, get the food supply under your belt. That's it, own that. You've got to have the ability to, to reduce that food supply to make, bring folk to their knees when you want to. You've got to get the water supply, and we'll see that happening too. You'll see it happening. Even one of the James Bond movies was about that, wasn't it? Philanthropy, uh, just taking over the, the water supply of the world under good causes and conservation. But you've had these scary scenarios drummed into you, and you couldn't watch TV, I'm and I'm sure it's, just, it's worse than ever nowadays without getting it slipped into movies and documentaries and dramas. All, the, all your, your PC upgrades, updates, uh, come from television and drama and fiction and so on. And of course, the, the school. Anyway, I want to mention too that one of the meetings that they had, I think in, uh, the United Nations had, about the global warming you know, and the climate debate, one of the ones they had, they, it slipped out, and it was in Utah, I think in August, uh, that that, that um, they had to re- really um, get a, a new, a deeper indoctrination put through the school systems universally. When they mean the world, <laughs> it's already there, but they mean the next phase of it too. And I'll just say in the time I've got left here, because I didn't mean to prattle about all this, as usual, but um, 
here you are, uh, outcomes last week, buried pretty well underneath all the, the political drama and stuff that's going on, as the U.S. is still building more bases, by the way, in Syria, another two bases, because they'll have to eventually invade Iran. doesn't matter what front person they have in. We know that, don't we? But the rest of it's all this drama at the moment. But you have... Um, the signatories for the article, World Scientists Warning of a Climate Emergency. So they always give these terrible, scary scenarios before the climate meetings, you see. And so they give you a whole bunch of... Now, you can go into any university, and you can get pretty well anybody. You can you see that by the spoof ones that they do. Do you believe in so-and-so? Sign this. And everybody signs, all the, all the university signs it, signs sign. Oh, yeah, sure, sure, sure. You could probably get a, th- a few thousand in a week if you wanted to, quite easily. And... Uh, same thing with the signatories of our articles. So all these climate scientists who are all getting their paychecks from, from scary scenarios, you see. Big paychecks. These are folk who wouldn't get... They'd be a dime a dozen before. Nobody wanted them. When you just had what was called weather. What's the weather for today? Oh, no, it's, what's the climate change for today, you know? Well, it might rain or it might not rain. And it might be warm, it might be cold. And where I'm here, here, I, I, I can remember Al Gore years ago saying, you won't see snow by, by the year 2006 or something, something like that was. And, of course, nothing stopped and more snow than ever. And last year I could walk up and t- onto my roof eventually to get snow off, uh, like every other day, mind you. Seriously, that's how bad it was. It snowed more last year into this year. Uh, than uh, I've ever seen before, ever seen before, ever. Mm. Mind you, the spraying has gone on like crazy in the skies too. But I could walk onto my roof without a ladder eventually, there was just so much snow. So uh, Al Gore hasn't uh, apologised for his nonsense and his scary scenarios. But anyway, I'll put the signatories up, the ones who signed it all, for this, for this big, big push. Oh, my world scientists warn of a climate emergency, or experts. And Bertrand Russell said that we'll train the public to, to believe experts. doesn't mean that they're true. Just, just, sit, just write this down, have them, have them say this, I'm an expert, blah, blah, blah. And the public will be. And people do. They really believe in that. They won't, they won't believe their own common sense anymore or their own um, outcomes on any problem. They'll, they'll believe in expert, though. So I'll put that up there. And then you've got 10 times experts predicted the world would end by now. And this article here is from Fox News. March 19th. I've got a date, the date now, year in it. But anyway, it's got some scientists agree the world will get warmer, but there's no cliff edge. And um, it says millennials and people. You know, gener- Generation Z. By the way, that's how they coded them for every every generation who get propagandized. You see, every 25 to 30 year is a generation. Never used to have that when I grew up, what you were. But then you, you get um, the Ys and then the Zs and then millennials and so on. And it says the world is going to end in 12 years if we don't address climate change. Now, it was Ocasio-Cortez said in January. But similar past predictions, even by the most prestigious experts, have failed to pan out here. Ten of the biggest doomsday prediction failures. And I can remember, too, before I started, the Prince Charles came out with that years ago. Same thing. Oh, but he put it in days, like so many hundreds of days, you know. But it says here, in 1989, the Associated Press released a warning from the United Nations official. 
A senior UN environmental official says entire nations can be wiped off the face of the earth by rising sea levels if the global warming trend is not reversed by the year 2000. My God. And the official was Noel Brown, director of the New York office of the UN Environment Program, who added shifting climate patterns would bring back 1930s dust bowl conditions to Canadian and US wheat lands. Instead, U.S. and global farm production rose, and more than one billion people worldwide rose out of extreme poverty due to economic growth. And then, um, no nations were wiped off the face of the earth as of 2019. However, those worried about uh, warming caution that the United Nations official predictions was nuanced. He's not saying that entire nations are going to be wiped off the face of the earth by the year 2000. Joe Rom, a senior fellow at American Progress, told Fox News, he's saying that if we don't dramatically reverse emissions by the year 2000, then we're not going to be able to avoid future flooding, Rom said. Uh, it, says, it now seems inevitable that a number of island nations will be wiped off the face of the earth because we didn't act in time, he says. Now, it's, I know some, like the Maldives, you know, it's a little collection of small islands in the Pacific, and they've got a population of just over 400,000. But the highest point on, 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 in the country, right, and these islands really, is 7.9 feet above the sea level. I mean, a good wave would kind of <laughs> put you off, wouldn't it? Uh, it says, with much of, of the islands being below three feet high, that is, off the sea. So these, remember too, these are these were all volcanic ones, and volcanoes push them up, and then start to, over hundreds of years, or even faster sometimes, they'll, they'll start dropping back into the ocean. So it's not climate change, it's this natural, it's a natural cycle. Anyway, it says, um, in 1967, a best-selling book came out called Famine 1975, America's Decision, Who Will Survive? to mass starvation around the development world due to increasing population and today's crisis can move in only one direction towards catastrophe, it said. It says, all serious students of the plight of the underdeveloped nations agree that famine is inevitable. Caltech biology professor Peter Bonner wrote in 1967 review of the book in the prestigious journal Science. The exact opposite of the book's prediction happened. Famine deaths plunged dramatically as farming technology improved. Communist countries began allowing private property again, and the globe became further connected. But that last part is really interesting because, you see, communism really, they didn't even feed themselves during the communist era, the Soviet era. Canada got a big income every year, and so did the States, from selling their wheat and so on to Russia. They used to compete for the, the rights to sell it to them. And the bidding, uh, a bidding war, they called it at the time, every year. Because there's politics involved and stupid people who just know how you should all live. And this is, this is what all this scary scenario is about, too. Same thing. According to data, says put by uh, our world in data, more people died in famine in a single decade prior to the book's release than in all 52 years since it was published. Yeah, the book got widespread praise from experts. Now, here, here you go, ecologist Paul Ehrlich. <laughs> Now, president of the Center for Conservation Biology at Stanford University said in 1968 that the book may be remembered as one of the most important books of our age, he says. Now, remember, too, he himself put out the population bomb, etc. Another scary books as well, but it's all our fault. There's too many people, blah, blah, blah. And his wife was on the Club of Rome on the board of it, by the way. It's interesting. That it's really a small world when you get going with it all. 
Anyway, there's also global killing was once a worry to me, such as the University of California's Davis professor, and Davis professor Kenneth Watt, who warned that present trends would make the world 11 degrees colder in the year 2000, but twice that what it would take to put us into an ice age. But British science writer Nigel Calder was just as worried the threat of a new ice age must now stand alongside nuclear war as a likely source of wholesale death and misery for mankind, he warned in 1975, Wildlife magazine. It goes on and on and on, eh? Then massive warming by the year 2000. The same UN official predict the loss of entire nations by the year 2000 also claimed the most conservative scientific estimate is that the Earth's temperature will rise 127 degrees in the next 30 years. But looking back from 2019, temperature rose about half a degree Celsius since 1989, according to NASA. And so on and so on and so on. Al Gore says that 10 years are left in 2006. That's what it was, 10 years. There's been no snow or anything. We'll be baked. In 2006, we're promoting his movie, An Inconvenient Spoof. Oh, sorry, truth. Al Gore said that humanity has only 10 years left before the world would reach a point of no return. Gore's movie also featured animations of water inundating Manhattan and Florida. Yet critics point out that just a few years later, he bought an $8 million beachfront property near Los Angeles. I wish the climate catastrophists practiced what they preached and sold me their beachfront property at a steep discount, Alex Epstein, author of The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, told Fox News. I also noticed, too, by the way, that the guy who brought you a lot of the same stuff was um, Maurice Strong, and he's, he's dead now, but um, he also bought a, an island just off, off it, was in, it was British Columbia, and uh, low-lying, too, after all these halibut islands disappearing into the sea. All these scary scenarios, which they admit that they do. I've got articles too where it says they admit we give them scary scenarios. Otherwise, we won't listen to them. You won't give up your rights. You won't stop eating meat. You won't stop eating different kinds of vegetables too. You won't even stop eating. They, want you, they don't want you even to breathe carbon dioxide out. Do you get that? I mean, you've seen that the big bags they put on the, on, on the cattle, right? Haven't you? Oh my God, well, these, these bovines, that's your meat supply for the world, right? Uh, you, you, well, you know, that they, they give methane out. Well, eventually they'll be putting those bags on you as well, folks, if you let them. I'm not kidding you. I really am not kidding you. That's how dumb it is and crazy it is. Massive propaganda to make you give up all your rights. Like the, the Club of Rome said, they were given a task. Given the task to make you give up all your rights to be, so you can be ruled properly by your betters, basically. Our article, Whatever Happened to Global Cooling, goes into this too. And I've got articles too about another so-called expert who, <laughs> who actually admitted about the scary scenario syndromes and how they put them out and, and how you've got to do it, you see. You've got to do it. It might be against your conscience, but you've got to do it, you see. So, I'm telling you. It was, I think his name was Snyder, yeah. He authored a 1971 article in the journal Science about atmospheric aerosols, floating particles of sawdust, volcanic ash, and human-made pollutants, and suggested that industrial aerosols could block sunlight and reduce global temperatures enough to overcome the effects of greenhouse gases, possibly triggering an ice age. But he soon realized that he had overestimated the amount of aerosols in the air and underestimated the role of greenhouse gases. So he's one of the main, he's been right along, all along, he was one of the main uh, proponents for us all giving up all our rights to be managed, etc. Of course, he would benefit awfully, awfully well with big fat salaries. And he said that to the, to the rest of them. Sometimes they have to 
juggle with their conscience, the scientists, if they're, if they're not quite sure about to make the folk listen and go along with it. <laughs> and then I've got another one too. Agriculture must change fundamentally. The industry is contributing to 37% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Here's your food supply, folks. This is depopulation. This is what the whole thing the, sci- the climate scientists said. There's too many people. And what they said was what the, the, the eugenicists have been saying for the last 70 or 80 years, maybe longer actually. There's too many of you. I hope, you get, I hope you're starting to get it here. Hmm? And they've got these radicalized youngsters like armies across the world now. And the UN's promoting every speech they give at schools across the world. They've got to really terrify the children. So they'll be good little advocates of this agenda to save us all. What you're seeing is the same techniques they use for a communist revolution, only on a much, much bigger scale, and using your tax money to do it all. But your elites want it, you see. Believe you me, if this was happening outside of, of the big power structure, the true elite wouldn't allow it to happen. You'd never see a light of day in any newspaper. The elite want this. The same folk who gave you the mass migrations, that gave you the wars, and all the rest of it. Also here, I've got one, this article here, it's actually, I've got some PDFs I'll put up as well. And one is, what Snyder said actually, he actually printed it in the Detroit News Editorial 22, November 1989. On the one hand, as scientists, we're ethically bound to the, the scientific method. On the other hand, we're not just scientists, but human beings as well. To avert the risk of potential disastrous climate change, we need to get some broad-based support to capture the public imagination. That, of course, means getting loads of media coverage, so we have to offer up some scary scenarios, make simplified dramatic statements, and little mention of any doubts one might have. Each of us has to decide what the right balance is between being effective and being honest. He was the author of the book Global Warmings, from the Sierra Club, by the way, that again, Prince Philip was in the head of Sierra Club too. An interview in Discover Magazine, 1989. I, I've given the speeches by Philip before, who, was, who cut to the chase, but behind all the environmental so on and preservation stuff was always depopulation of too many humans. Anyway, the Snyder eventually tried to say that uh, he only, the only the cut out parts of his interview, etc. Long after the fact, mind you, but, but what else can you say? He's getting well paid to, to terrify the public. And also, Monsanto wins $7.7 billion lawsuit in Brazil, but farmers fight to stop it. It's a moral royalty system will continue. Interesting how they, again, a monopolization of food. And even the seed. You're not allowed to keep the seed if it's there. Mind they've sold the company off because they've got such a bad name. But it's the same group who manage it all under buyer. There's no doubt about it. This is how you... This, this changing, you know, pretending they're, they're selling things and changing is a typical... Typical uh, system and, and big, big, big commerce at the top. They do the same with bankruptcies in some companies. That they close down their big, big chains of stores, but they've got other ones on the, on the sidelines here. And they write off as taxes. Everything's always the same, folks. So I'll put up these, these things. On, there's never enough time to do all this stuff in any big, big... Uh, it doesn't really matter anyway, actually, because, as I say, the time is, is long gone. Long gone. For just stopping, you guys stop things and nip it in the bud right off the bat when things happen. And folk don't have the time. And the time they do have, they're exhausted and they'll, they'll rather watch a TV and a drama or a fiction 
and get brainwashed that way, just as effective, maybe more effectively than look at anything serious. That's the truth of it, isn't it? So you, in, an, in the age of mass persuasion, you have mass communication by television and by other source too, all on board with the same agenda, folk. You don't have much of a chance. And your school children are brainwashed as soon as they walk through that door into a whole bunch of things that are kind of crazy these days, aren't they? Come on, let's be honest here. But I'll put these, all these links up for you to, to have a good look at. I'll put up the Monsanto wins the $7.7 billion lawsuit in Brazil. Well, you, this point is pay off the politicians, eh? And the lawyers and the, and the judges. Just the judges will do. But farmers fight to stop its immoral royalty system will continue. Says Monsanto owns everything. Because, it, because it's a sign of growing un, uneasiness for the control of Monsanto has over farmers. Look, look what they've done. I mean, everything you're eating now is modified stuff. They took the natural uh, grains from every country and put it into special arcs where they, they preserve them all for future for the elite to live down the road when we're all dead and gone through starvation and so on as they, as they take away the natural food supply. And then uh, their protein supply, forget it, folks. Forget it. And then you, t- you, then you get folk off of the energy that gave them uh, health. Don't you forget, everything you eat is energy. Food is energy. Electricity is energy. Coal is energy. During the times of coal, the populations rose dramatically in health. Because it gave you you plenty of electricity and other things too. And heat, especially in the colder climates, rather important. You get some heat. If you don't get the heat, and there are enough heat too, you get children who right off the bat have tremendous problems with their lungs and infections and so on. And they're never, ever totally healthy. And a lot of them die young. This is all intentional, folks. Take away your food supply and to, you know, start reducing it and reducing it and reducing it. And, and then you uh, take away your, your... Oh, great. Remember years ago I gave the talks on the brownouts. They were practic- actually practicing brownouts, electrical brownouts, in parts of Europe and Holland. And that was, was to come to North America too. And then eventually you'll have a schedule of when they're going to cut off your power supply for so many hours per week and per day and so on. You can be trained into all this stuff under a crisis war situation like the Green Party's uh, woman said in Britain, a politician. They can train you, just terrify you enough, and you'll give it all up. So take away your energy of food, the energy of, of heat, or air conditioning in the hot climates, by the way, and folks start dying. And now, too, of course, they're going into it with, with the euthanasia to, to save money for the governments. But you can bring masses of people in and put them up and pay for their rent and their, pay for their health care. They got bunged on the top of the list. And this is true in Britain. I had stinks about it in Britain. Big stinks where the folk couldn't get it themselves, get treatment for different things themselves. Tony Blair, big scandals came out during his time where he said that the recent migrants were just come, come, even, even the ones who had no entrance papers would get top priority treatment at hospitals. But the folk waiting in the hospitals in Britain or waiting, waiting to get any hospital, even for cancer, couldn't get in. I read the articles from the newspapers at the time. As I say, getting back to the animals, they're honest. They're more honest. If an animal's going to go for you and try and eat you, you're going to get the message very quickly. But with humans, they can persuade you to give up. Persuasion, right? Give up. The art of psychological warfare is to try to conquer the enemy without firing a shot. 
and we've gone through the biggest war of all right now. For everything that is near and dear to any natural human being. And most folk are unaware during their stampede. You always stampede the people when you want massive change and then you direct the, the, the direction of the stampede. They're going through the stampede and that they don't know this, this has even been done to them. They think it's all real. Oh, well, what can you do? Better just do what they want. Sad but true. Anyway, folks, remember, you can help donate to me, hopefully. I keep forgetting. And, and uh, buy the books and discs at cuttingthroughmerace.com. But donate, donate, and go to my website too for the archives, and you'll find lots to, to bolster what I'm saying here. And it's not made-up stuff. I use the facts as it's published and printed and so on. And remember, too, as I say, that my official sites, you'll find them all at cuttingthroughthematrix.com. Make a list of the sites I have there, listed there, in case anything happens to the first one or the main one. And you, they all have the same material on them, so hopefully I've got enough standbys. But make a list of them, and you'll see how to donate to me, too. And remember, I can send check or cash, and there's PayPal and other things, too, other ways to do it. Outside Canada and the States, you can send international postal money orders as well from your post office if you want to, or as I say, send cash. But unfortunately, inside the U.S., uh, they're doing away with uh, selling postal orders in the U.S. and Canada. They're going to bring a digital currency in. You know, that's part of the plan anyway for the unification of the Americas. That was <laughs> stated back in the 1990s at some of their early meetings. They always do tell you what, you're going to, what they're going to bring in. It's just that we don't want to believe them. Then by the time it happens, folk have been brainwashed into acceptance by minute bits and bites for years till it all seems quite natural. That's the beauty of persuasion by the masters of the mind. For myself, I'm Alan Watt, where it's really cold. I've been getting way below freezing for the last week, in a way. And I've got snow, of course, because of global warming. Uh, no thanks to Al Gore. It's a good night from me and to your Canada. And may your God, or your gods go with you. <laughs>